Once again, a great sound. Kids earlier and this beautiful choir at this point. Before our scripture reading, please bow, our, bow your heads, join with me in the prayer of illumination. Holy God, word made flesh, let us come to this word open to being surprised. Silence our agendas, banish our assumptions, cast out our casual detachment, confound our expectations, clear the cobwebs from our ears, penetrate the corners of our hearts with this word. We know that you can, we pray that you will, and we wait with great anticipation. Amen. The scripture reading today from the Old Testament is Psalm 118, verses 19 through 29. You can find it in the Pew Bibles on page 554 to 555 if you care to read along. Psalm 118, verse 19 through 29. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who, came, who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Turning from the Old to the New Testament, our gospel lesson is from Mark, the 11th chapter. I'll read the first 11 verses. Should you wish to follow along, this is on page 922 in a pew Bible. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say, the Lord needs it, and he will bring, send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. 
Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And then just briefly, another wrinkle on the Palm Sunday parade. This is from Luke's gospel. Reading from the 19th chapter, verse 41. As Jesus came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was the strangest kind of day and the strangest kind of parade. It started out as a fun and festive event, but it ended up being a bitter disappointment, a disillusionment, a festal failure, if you will. The place was the iconic town square in my hometown of Canton, Mississippi. The event was the annual Christmas parade that all of the children in town especially looked forward to for weeks on end. The year was 1954. Our parents had taken my older brother and me uh, to the Christmas parade. They knew how we loved it year after year. It was a spectacle that everyone eagerly anticipated. It signaled the uh, turning on of the town Christmas lights. It signaled the beginning of the holiday shopping season. But the best part of it for children like us at that time was that the end of the parade, as Claire mentioned, uh, Santa Claus arrived right behind the high school marching band. Now, my brother was 10 at the time. I was 8. And we knew things about Christmas and about the Christmas parade that our parents did not know that we knew. And sadly, however, they knew things about Christmas and about the parade that we didn't know, at least at the time. But that helped to account for the little enthusiasm they showed as they were taking us to the parades in that year. What we knew and hadn't admitted to our parents for obvious reasons was the great mystery surrounding St. Nicholas. And not only that, but we knew the man who was invited annually by the people in the town to play Santa's helper and to be the Santa Claus for the end of that Christmas parade. He was the perfect choice to be that. His name was Luther, and uh, there could not be, could have been a, a better Santa Claus from at least my brother and my perspective. Not only was he jolly and plump, uh, but he wore those obligatory wire-rimmed glasses. He loved children, and he had the mandatory rosy red cheeks. Our parents happened to know, as we didn't, what the cause of those rosy red cheeks was. <laughs> And that had something to do with his absence from the parade in 1954. <laughs> but we were thrilled because we knew Luther, and better than that, Luther knew us. He was our next-door neighbor. He was a member of our little Presbyterian church in Canton. And while he loved all children, uh, he especially knew those, loved those that he knew. And while he was throwing out candy provided by the local Piggly Wiggly to all the children on the street. If he saw kids that he knew, like my brother and I, he would give them an extra toss of, of candy. But that was not to be the case in 1954. 
And I don't know who was responsible for choosing the substitute Santa Claus for the Canton Christmas Parade in 1954, but if you asked my brother or me, we would have said they should have looked a little longer. (laughs) It was a pathetic excuse for a Santa Claus. The weather was bad enough. It was rainy and drizzly and cold, but it wasn't near so depressing or disillusioning as uh, that uh, parade that year. By the time the new Santa made it to the end of the parade, he was clearly cold and wet and weary and worn out. The man had no sense of proportion either. He had already given away all the candy uh, to other children (laughs) further up the route. There was none left by the time he got to the parade's end. Not only did he not call us by name, he didn't even know who we were, we didn't know who he was, and he didn't have any seeming interest in learning anything about us. But Luther was just what any child would have expected, certainly back in 1954. But his substitute, he was skinny, mean-looking, and didn't resemble jolly old St. Nick near so much as he did a drowned rat in a cheap store-bought suit. So yes, it was a strange kind of day and a strange kind of parade back in 1954, and the Massey boys, at least, were underwhelmed and disillusioned. And I often think of that parade. When I read about a parade 2,000 years prior to that, the first Palm Sunday parade, it too was similarly strange, if you pay attention to it in the scriptures, and it was disappointing. It was disillusioning for most in the crowd. It started out as a festive affair to be sure. Jesus entered the gates amidst all the fanfare and hoopla, the pomp and circumstance. People had spilled over into the streets from the Passover celebrations that were going on. Uh, They were in anticipation of what would happen at the parade's end because they thought they knew what was happening. What Jesus had come to do. Now the focus of the parade on that day was this quiet man seated on a borrowed colt with crowds gathered around him, shouting and singing and laughing and turning the place upside down as they got whatever they could put their hands on, clothes off their back, palms off the trees, branches they cut in the fields, and fashioned a kingly carpet for this king of the Jews to ride down as he went to the temple of of the mount, making his way through the narrow streets of Jerusalem. Something amazing was about to happen. They knew it. Something astounding. So there was electricity in the air as the parade moved toward the Temple Mount. Now, pay close attention here to how the story draws to a close. It was not much different from the Christmas parade of 1954 because the point of it all is not what happened, but what didn't happen. What didn't happen. There they were, shouting and singing, laughing and greeting their neighbors as the crowd swept through the city into the open area in front of the Temple Mount. Intense with anticipation and expectancy, the crowd watches the Galileans every move. What is he going to do now? What will he say? Every now and then they would steal a glance up to heavens, waiting for angels to descend or a voice from the Heavenly Father or a trumpet blast, something stupendous and exciting. Was this not the promised Messiah? That's what the people had been saying up in Galilee. Was this not the chosen one of God? Was he not about to bring down legions of angels to establish the kingdom of Israel, to restore the throne of David, 
to expand the borders of Israel to where they were in King David's day? Is this not the moment that the prophets had foretold? Is this not a descendant of David arriving as a conquering king but on a donkey as Zechariah prophesied? So they watch him carefully, every move he makes, until he dismounts from the colt and he walks into the temple. And they are waiting. What are they waiting for? A lightning bolt? An angel to descend on the Holy of Holies? An earthquake? Something dramatic has to happen, surely. A minute passes. Then three minutes. And then five minutes. And a bystander in the crowd murmurs something about, sure, it's taking a long time in there, isn't he? But there's an eerie silence. Maybe there's a baby in the crowd that's crying somewhere, or a dog barking in the back street. But nothing seems to be happening. And there's a growing restlessness and unease within the crowd. And no one was quite prepared for what didn't happen on Palm Sunday. And so slowly, one by one, the crowd begins to dwindle away, sad and disappointed. And they returned to their mundane task. task. The day was far spent, so they plodded back to their shops to close up shop for the day. The shopkeepers did. Others made their way home, I suspect, waiting for a long evening. But there was an eerie silence and an emptiness within everyone. Here was a parade that fizzled out. Did any story ever build to a more dramatic anticlimax Alexander Pope once wrote, Blessed is the one who expects nothing, for he shall never be disappointed. But that didn't apply to these people. They had high expectations, unrealistic expectations about what was soon to occur. Even the gospel writers themselves seemed to not be able to get the flat taste of it out of their mouths. Listen to how Mark describes it. Then Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around, as it was already late... He went out to Bethany with the twelve. That is how Mark draws to a close this story about the singing and the shouting and the hosannas. The story of the entrance of the Messiah into Jerusalem. Matthew and Luke, in the writing of their Gospels, who have the Gospel of Mark right in front of them when they write, must have felt the need to spice up the story a bit, make it a little more dramatic. And so they place Jesus' cleansing of the temple at this point. In their Gospels. So yes, Jesus goes into the temple, but he goes in with a whip in hand to drive out the loan sharks and the money lenders uh, from his father's house. So at least Matthew and Luke put a little excitement into the story. Not so in Mark. In Mark, the cleansing of the temple doesn't happen until the following day on Monday. In John's Gospel, it happens way back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in his first visit to Jerusalem, second visit to Jerusalem. Not so in Mark. But I think Mark is really on target. Mark is the gospel who's interested just in the facts, ma'am. Just in the facts. And so in Mark's gospel, the Christmas parade draws to a conclusion, not with a bang, but with a whimper, as one poet put it. It was not unlike the Christmas parade in Mississippi so many years ago, a parade that disappointed and disillusioned because the hopes and expectations of those who were observing simply were not fulfilled. The one that they had hoped to come 
was not the one who had arrived. And the one who did arrive was far different from the one they expected. Yes, it was a strange kind of day, that far-off day in Jerusalem, when the first Palm Sunday parade took place. About as strange as life itself on many days. And the thing is, Jesus knew how he would be greeted when he arrived in the city. He knew what the crowds were anticipating and looking for, and he knew that he himself was something far different from their expectations. The king they were welcoming was not the king he came to be, far from it. And so that is why he stopped, looked at the city, and wept over it. And that is why Luke reports him as saying, if you had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Now, no question about it, lest you don't understand what I'm saying. Jesus was the Christ. He is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He took special precautions to arrive on a colt, just as Zechariah had said that he would. He left nothing to chance. The whole thing was carefully orchestrated. The only problem was that the Messiah that the people were welcoming, the Messiah the people wanted, was not the Messiah he came to be. The people were convinced that Jesus was arriving to set up his own kingdom, to claim the throne of Israel, to put on a crown, not a crown of thorns, but a crown of gold, to help Israel rule the rest of the world, to drive out their occupiers, the Romans. But Jesus was a different kind of Messiah and king completely. And so Jesus knew what awaited him. He had told his disciples on three different occasions what they should expect when they got there. He would be beaten and mocked and crucified. He was coming not for a throne, but for a cross. And he would have a crown, but it would not be of gold, rather of thorns. Now all this prompts me to ask you on Palm Sunday 2018, which Messiah are you welcoming into your life? Which Messiah are you really worshiping this morning? Are you honoring and worshiping a Messiah that you have manufactured in your own mind? A Messiah who's going to come in and save you miraculously and dramatically solve all of your life's problems to rid you of your enemies, to resolve all of your conflicts and issues? Is that what you're waiting for? Are you welcoming a triumphant miracle worker or are you welcoming instead a Messiah who chose a path of suffering and sacrifice and invites his followers to join him on that trek? The plain truth is that there are many Christians filling the pews throughout the world today who are not quite satisfied with the God that they've got. They want a God who can step in and fix things up in their lives, overlook their sins and their failings, Take care of them and theirs and people like them and make sure that they get all that they really feel they want and need. Endorse their lifestyle or their political views. And when their God doesn't operate in this fashion, then like the crowds in Jesus' day, they can often turn and either reject their God or go in search of a more satisfying Savior. 
Sometimes we wonder how the crowd could have turned so in such a short period of time that the same people who were shouting Hosanna on Sunday will be shouting crucify him by Friday. Was the crowd so fickle? No, I don't think so, not at all. The crowd was just extremely human, like you and me. After all, all of us really want a God who will baptize us and support us and take care of our needs and give us what we ask or request. And when our God doesn't behave like that, we're tempted to question either God's love or his power. Either he's inconsiderate or he's impotent. So we go in search of another. And we have never quite known what to do with a God like the God who came in Jesus, who doesn't operate in a barnstorming fashion, an intention-grabbing way, but prefers instead to work through humble, committed people who are willing to lay down their lives in sacrificial service in the same manner in which he did. No, we want a God who's going to work out everything to our benefit and operate in a dramatic fashion and not one who is going to prevail upon us to help solve the problems and the issues in life. And so as we celebrate Palm Sunday 2018 and remember our Lord's entrance into the city, let us remember the nature of the Messiah we are here to worship and to follow. And let us be sure that the Messiah we are following is not some Messiah that we've manufactured or created through our fertile imaginations, not some Messiah who is a projection of our own dreams and desires and wishes. I had a seminary professor, I'll never forget what he said one time. He said, human beings are created in the image of God and we have been returning the favor ever since. We create a God in our own image and expect God to act like we think God should. When we were children, we may have wanted a Santa Claus who looked like a Santa Claus, acted like a Santa Claus, and whose mission and purpose in life was to bless us and make us happy. And sometimes these children grow up, and they want a Savior who looks like a Savior, acts like a Savior, and whose mission in life is to bless us and make us happy. But in point of fact, the Messiah who came that first Palm Sunday and continues to be among us now did not come simply to bless us, though he does, but he came so that he could use us, so that he could use us, so that he could transform us and employ us in his kingdom work and join him in lives of sacrificial service. You see, it was this Messiah who said to those who would follow him, if you will take up your own cross and follow me, you will be my disciple. Let us pray. Holy and loving God, whose blessed Son, Jesus Christ, entered the city of Jerusalem to die, we pray that he would enter our lives anew, cleansing our hearts of all that crucifies the Son of God afresh, clarifying our vision that we may discern the things that continue to make him suffer or to cause him to weep. Reinforce our wills to follow after the Savior with greater patience and strength and humility. And by your grace, O God, equip us with the resources of your Spirit, so that taking up our own crosses and entering into the fellowship of his sufferings, we too may come at last to dwell with him in his eternal realm. 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.